marvellous. That's absolutely brilliant. Even though there are no light on you, I can see there are lots and lots and lots and lots of you, which is great. And good afternoon and welcome. Um, I'm Jenny McIntosh, and I'm here to um, ostensibly to chair what I think will be quite a lively hour and a half under the heading Suffragettes on Stage. And um, I'll just introduce you. Hello, where are you? Yes, there you are. Um, to the people who are on the stage with me are... On my further left, Maggie Gale. Here is Naomi Paxton. And Naomi is the um, compiler and editor of the Methuen Drama Book of Suffrage Plays. Did everybody hear that? Yes. Thank you. Um, and um, Naomi Paxton is editor of SANE. And she's going to be available at the end. Now, behind me are a very fine collection of actors. Um, and two of them, um, Samantha Bond, who is there, and Janie D, who is here, are going to join us on the panel. Um, but they're sitting up there at the moment with their colleagues, who are Stephen Blake, Emma Lowndes, Rhiannon Oliver, and Geoffrey Stretfield. And they are going to um, regale you with various bits of different plays. And Naomi is going to introduce the extracts that we're going to hear. But as I say, Samantha and Janie, I hope, are also going to join us um, for some of the discussion. So, um, Naomi, yeah. kick us off. Tell us about what we're going to hear first. The first extract we're going to hear is from a play called How the Vote Was Won, which was one of the most popular suffrage plays, um, set on the day of a general women's strike called by the suffragettes because the government have said that women do not need votes as they are all looked after by men. All the women of the country who have been supporting themselves agree to leave their jobs and their homes and instead insist on the support of their nearest male relative. <laughs> so the scene we find ourselves in is the sitting room in Horace Cole's house in Brixton, who has uh, been visited by various female relatives on this particular afternoon. Uh, we're going to meet four of them today. The first visitor is his sister, Agatha. But all this sounds as if you'd become a suffragette. Oh, Agatha, I always thought you were a lady. Well, I, yes, I was a lady. Such a lady that at 18 I was thrown upon the world penniless, with no training whatever which fitted me to earn my own living. When women become citizens, <coughs> I believe that daughters will be given the same chances as sons, and such a life as mine will be impossible. Next, in comes his niece, Molly. You know perfectly well, Molly, that I disapprove of you in every way. <laughs> I hear, oh, I've never read it, of course, but I hear you've written the most scandalous book. And you live in lodgings by yourself, when if you chose, you could afford some really nice and refined boarding house. And you have most undesirable acquaintances, and altogether... Cheer up, Uncle. Now's your chance of reforming me. Come to live with you. You can support me and disapprove me at the same time. He is also visited by his second cousin, the fashion designer Madame Christine. <laughs> do, you, do you think you're justified in coming to a poor clerk and asking him to support you? I mean, you could probably turn over my yearly income in a single week. 
Oh, didn't, didn't you come here in your own motor? At three o'clock, that motor became the property of the Women's Social and Political Union. <laughs> all the rest of my property and all available cash have been divided equally between the National Union and the Women's Freedom League. Money is the sinews of war, you know. And the fourth visitor is the skeleton in the cupboard of a respectable family, Horace's first cousin, the music hall actress, Maudie Spark. The actresses have gone on strike, resting indefinitely. I've done my little bit towards that. They won't get any more work out of Maudie Spark, queen of the comedians, until the women have got the vote. Ladies and fellow relatives, you'll be pleased to hear the strike's going fine. Every man, like Horry here, has his house full of females. Most of them thought, like Horry, that they go to the theatre to escape. But there's not a blessed theatre to go to! Oh, what a song it'll make! A woman's place is in the home. I don't think, I don't think, I don't think! In this scene, at the end of the play, Horace, under duress, finally sees the light. Well, it must not take a long time. I shan't allow it. It shall be done at once. Oh, well, you needn't all look so surprised. I know I've been against it, but I didn't realise things. I, I, I thought only a few howling dervishes wanted the vote. <laughs> but, but when I find that you, uh, cousin, well, fancy a woman of your firmness of character, uh, one who's always been so careful with her money, being declared incapable of voting. I mean, the thing is absurd. Oh, oh, he's waking up. If there are a few women here and there who are incapable, and I mention no names, mind, it doesn't affect the position. Well, what's going to be done? And who's going to do it? If this rotten government think we're going to maintain millions of women in idleness just because they don't like the idea of my Aunt Lizzie making a scratch on a bit of paper and shoving it into a ballot box once every five years, this government have reckoned without the men. <laughs> now, I'll show them what I've got a vote for. But what do they expect? I mean, well, you can't all marry. There aren't enough men to go round. And if you're earning your own living and paying taxes, you ought to have a say. It's only fair. Here, here. Now, the government are narrow-minded idiots. Here, here. They, they talk as if all women ought to stay at home, washing and ironing. Well, before a woman has a wash tub, she must have a home to put it in, mustn't she? And who's going to give it to her? I'd like them to tell me that. Well, do they expect me to do it? Yes, dear. <laughs> well, I say, if she can do it herself and keep herself, so much the better for everyone. Well, anyhow, who are the government? They're only representing me and being paid thousands a year by me for carrying out my wishes. Oh, uh, what ho? <laughs> I like a woman to be a woman. That's the way I was brought up. But if she insists on having a vote, and apparently she does... She does, she says. Well, I don't see why she shouldn't have it. Many a woman came in here at the last election and tried to wheedle me into voting for her particular candidate, and she has time to do that. And I never heard the member say then she ought to be at home washing the baby. I don't see why she hasn't time to vote. Well, he's never taken up much of my time or interfered with my work. Well, I've only voted once in my life, but that's neither here nor there. I know what the vote does for me. It gives me a status. And that's what you women want. Status. Yes. Well, I might even call it a locus standi. Goodness. 
Well, if I go now and tell these rotten cabinet ministers what I think of them, it's my locust standard that will force them to listen to me. Oh, I know, and by gum, I'll give them a bit of my mind. Oh, they shall hear a few home truths for once. Gentlemen, I shall say, well, that won't be true of all of them to start with, but one must give them the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> Gentlemen, the men of England are sick and tired of your policy. And who's driven the women into this? You, because you were too stupid to know they meant business, because you couldn't read the writing on the wall. Oh, it, it may be nothing to you, gentlemen, that every industry in this country is paralysed and every Englishman's home is turned into a howling wilderness. A howling wilderness. By your refusal to see what's as plain as the nose on your face. But I would have you know, gentlemen, that it is something to us. We aren't slaves and we never will be slaves. Never, never. And we insist on reform. Gentlemen, conditions have changed and women have to work. Well, don't men encourage them to work, invite them to work? Make them work. And women are placed in the battle of life on the same terms as we are, short of one thing, the locust standi of the vote. Good old locust standi. If you aren't going to give it to them, gentlemen, and if they won't go back to their occupations without it, we ask you how they're going to live. Who's going to support them? Perhaps you're thinking of giving them all old age pensions and asking the country to pay the piper. The country will see you damned first, if, gentlemen, you'll pardon the expression. It's dawning upon us all that women would never have taken such a step as this if they hadn't been the victims of gross injustice. No, no, why shouldn't they have a voice in the laws which regulate the price of food and clothes? Don't they pay for food and clothes? Pay for mine since the age of six. Why shouldn't they have a voice in the rate of wages and the hours of labour in certain industries? Aren't they working at those industries? If you had a particle of common sense or decent feelings, gentlemen... Carl! Carl, come on, come on! You'll be late! The procession's forming on the town, there's no time to lose. What are you slacking here for? Perhaps this isn't good enough for you. I've got 12 of them in my drawing room. Take <laughs> the procession if you don't start at once. Hurry up, come on. Boats for women. Where's your banner? Where's your badge? Down with the government. Rule Britannia. Votes for women. Do you want to support a dozen women for the rest of your life, or don't you? <laughs> Every man in friction is going to Westminster. Borrow a ribbon and come along. Hurry up now! Hooray! Votes for women! Roll Britannia! <laughs> women, never, 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 shall be women! You may depend on me, all of you, to see justice done. Ah, when you want a thing done, get a man to do it. <laughs> And I should say that um, Drew Mulligan, who is probably out there somewhere in the audience, is the director who's helped to put all these extracts together. And thank you very much to him. Um, right. Naomi, tell us about the Actresses Franchise League. With pleasure. The Actresses Franchise League was formed in November of 1908 by a group of well-known actresses 
Um, it was neutral in regard to suffrage tactics, so they supported both militant and non-militant societies. Um, and they wanted to work for enfranchisement through educational means, so through propaganda meetings, through sale of literature, propaganda plays, and lectures. Uh, membership was open to any woman who was or had been in the theatrical profession, um, and also to musicians and to singers. And their colours were pink and green. Um, and they held weekly afternoon at homes every Friday at the Criterion Restaurant, which is actually where they started as well. Um, and they would have lectures um, with actresses chairing, some actresses speaking, as well as notable personalities, both suffrage and non-suffrage. There are other things um, uh, about sweated workers, about the white slave trade. They were really interested in all sorts of social issues. Um, and they grew very rapidly. By 1914, there were just under 1,000 members. Um, membership was limited to women only. But there was an affiliated men's group and also 100 patrons, so people who weren't directly actors or actresses but wanted to support the Actresses Franchise League. They also had provincial uh, secretaries in Glasgow, in Edinburgh, in Eastbourne and in Liverpool. And members could send their touring lists when they were away with shows um, to the organising secretary of the Actresses Franchise League, whose uh, office was just at the Strand, um, so that local suffrage societies could make contact with the actresses. So they really, not only um, large-scale ensemble plays, but also monologues and speeches, they really put their time and effort and used their powers for good, really, put their skills um, in front of local suffrage societies all over the country. Um, so they, they, were, they were politically engaged on a number of fronts, mm. but when it came to the plays, which I'm going to ask Maggie to talk to us about, did they actually commission them or did they act as a repository for plays that came in unsolicited that they then did or moved, moved on with? For plays that came in unsolicited that they then did or moved, moved on with? No, they did, they did commission them. They actually had their own play department as well. And so quite a lot of the actresses wrote plays too. Um, actresses were in a quite a unique position in the theatre because they were paid the same as men. Um, they were working women who paid taxes but weren't given the representation of sort of full citizenship. So they had their own kind of axe to grind and they, yeah, no, they, they wrote plays. So Maggie, tell us about the, the plays and in particular the writers of the plays. Um, I think it's really important with, it, with the Actors Franchise League to contextualise the work with playwrights who came before this kind of generation. And also to remember that lots of the women that wrote for the Actresses Franchise League, their work was produced again after the war. So these were playwrights with, some of them with very long careers. I think we forget that. Um, so of the, the Edwardian women who were writing plays, uh, playwrights like Cicely Hamilton, who began as an actress, worked in the theatre outside the Actresses Franchise League and within it. So there were well-known and less well-known writers Lots of women became writers through the Actresses Franchise League in the playwriting department. But, um, for example, Edith Littleton, whose son this theatre is named after, she wrote a number of plays um, in the early 1900s where a lot of the playwrights were from the social elite. Um, and as you move towards the, sort of the, the First World War beginning, around 15% of new plays put on in the theatres in London are by women. So that's quite... 15%, that's quite a high percentage. So these actresses were working at a time, and the writers who wrote for them were working at a time where there was a real fervent atmosphere of kind of activity um, and professionalisation. If you think the theatre was one of the few professions in which women had some power, 
uh, and some levels of equality, but it was also an industry built on inequality. And these women were trying to change their position in that theatre as well, as focusing their work very specifically on issues around um, agency, social agency and franchisement. I don't know that there's ever been a period where plays by women have been so focused on one issue. I think we were talking about this earlier. Uh, it really was about the stupidity of women not having the vote and the, the, the ridiculous logic used to justify women not being kind of equally treated as citizens. Just say a few words about that, because it struck me and it struck all of us, I think, that um, the, the narrative of, of sustaining inequality actually... It, now, when we look back 100 years, it's 100 years this year since Emily Davidson um, threw herself under, or did or didn't throw herself under a horse. Um, and that's the sort of high-profile uh, event in the history of, of the women's suffrage movement, I suppose. But um, the language that's used to defend inequality and was used then and is still being used now actually hasn't changed very much. And I think it would be interesting if you could just tell us a bit about the sorts of arguments that were used. And see whether they sound familiar. <laughs> I think that so the, the arguments that come out in that play, how the vote was won, were very, very familiar. That you know, women were looked after by men, and so on and so forth. And of course, for a lot of working-class women, they looked after the family. Um, women didn't have equal rights in terms of ownerships of, the, of their own property in the divorce laws. They really were unequal citizens. And I think lots of the plays, very often through humour have a really canny way of kind of holding up a mirror to that stupidity and the stupidity of those arguments. Um, uh, Naomi will tell you that lots of the plays also reverse the argument, so they have anti-suffragists on stage where the anti-suffragist position is just unpicked bit by bit by bit. But they did use humour a lot, I think. I think that's one of the most admirable things about them. In a, in a time of such strong feeling and such turbulent events, increasingly as the, as the years go on and militancy, more and more militancy comes in, these, these plays, they're propaganda plays, but this sort of light, humorous touch is just a really clever way of getting across the arguments to the audience and also keeping the arguments in focus because as the press were not reporting, reporting maybe the more militant side, but not reporting uh, the more constitutional arguments, these plays actually bring them to the fore and that, that makes them even more special. It's probably worth mentioning, uh, for those of you who don't know, which may not be many of you, that the, that the co-authors of How the Vote Was Won, and indeed an, uh, of another play which we're, we're coming to later, uh, are listed as Cicely Hamilton and Christopher St. John. But you will probably um, not be surprised to hear that Christopher St. John is not, in fact, a man. Um, and, and there are two things that are interesting about that. One is that, that she made a choice to, to um, change her name at a certain point in her life, but that also the tradition of women operating under a male pseudonym was still going on even at that point and indeed arguably still continues today in the form of initials. <laughs> think on. Um, okay. Um, uh, I think this might be a good moment to have our next extract. So introduce, us, um, introduce it to us, Naomi. Okay, so this next extract is from another incredibly popular suffrage play um, a different field completely, called A Pageant of Great Women. Um, and this features the character of woman, uh, prejudice, and justice. Famous women are called up by woman to plead her case before justice, whilst prejudice argues against it. Prejudice is not man, by the way, it's prejudice. 
Over 50 great women appear in six categories. The uh, learned women, the artists, the saintly women, the heroic women, the rulers, and the warriors. They don't speak, but their names and deeds are described by women as she pre presents them before justice. The pageant was incredibly popular across the country with all the suffrage societies. Um, locally famous women could be added into the list. And uh, the pageantry and elaborate costuming involved created a wonderful spect spectacle of propaganda. The play doesn't insert women into the existing patriarchal history. The great women form their own continuous history, um, each one full of, of resonant feminist potential for both the performers and the audience. Um, directed by Ellen Terry's daughter, Edith Craig, um, members of the Actresses Franchise League and of Craig's own company, the pioneer players would play women, prejudice and justice, and then members of local suffrage societies, and in some cases very famous suffragists, if it was for a large rally event, would play the great women. So this extract is from woman's final speech. Um, eventually, when faced with the evidence of how many great women there have been, and therefore how much women deserve the vote, and women deserve to be treated equally, prejudice slinks away. And justice tells women to go forth Thou hast an equal, not a master now. I will go speak with him, peer with peer, free woman with free man, free words, and therefore honest. Thus, I'll speak him. I have no quarrel with you, but I stand with a clear right to hold my life my own. The clear, clean right to mould it as I will, not as you will, with or apart from you. To make of it a thing of rain and blood, of tangible substance and of turbulent thought, no thin grey shadow of the life of man. I have no quarrel with you, but henceforth this you must know. The world is mine as yours, the pulsing strength and passion and heart of it. The work I set my hand to, woman's work, because I set my hand to it. <coughs> Henceforth, for my own deeds, myself am answerable to my own soul. For this, in days to come, you too shall thank me. Now you laugh, but I laugh too. A laughter without bitterness, feeling the riot and rush of crowding hopes dreams, longings, and vehement powers, and knowing this, tis good to be alive when morning dawns. Um, so, Sam Bond has joined us now, and we're going to talk a bit about uh, actresses at the, at the time that these plays were written. And um, I would imagine, uh, Sam, if you want to kick off on this, that um, they were uh, as diverse and motley a crew then as they are now. Um, but there was something in the nicest possible way, I mean that. Um, but, th but there were obviously a number who, who were politically engaged in quite a serious way. Yeah, I think yes, the astonishing thing about the um, Actresses Franchise League, the AFL, um, is the extraordinary support it got, you're quite right, across right across the actresses who were working, but a phenomenal support from the leading actresses. I mean, Naomi's gonna have to help me here, but your Lily Langtrys and your Sybil Thorndykes and names that we now, we still know now. 
and they threw their weight behind the movement. Um, you know, it's, it, it's kind of extraordinary, extraordinary until you remember what they were, of course, striving to change. And then, because a bit of me wants to say, you know, it's as though you had all the leading ladies of England fighting together today. And, of, of course, it is exactly that, but they were fighting for, for the right for equal citizenship. So maybe we shouldn't be surprised by the across-the-board support. Well, and, and presumably they, they had then, as indeed were such an issue to be uh, around now for everybody to get behind, um, they, they had visibility and pow the power that comes from visibility. Yeah, yeah. But it must also have been at some potential cost to themselves that, that they took up a cause for which not everybody felt equally enthusiastic. Well, they sort of put themselves on the front line and they rather um, cleverly used their gifts. So rather than join the suffragette movement, which was the militant side, they were suffragists. And they used, you know, the fact that they could stand on a stage and speak apparently eloquently, not me, but they used the gifts that they had so they could command an audience, they could make a passionate speech, they, um, and whilst remaining on the, um, the calm side of things, mainly. Yeah, well, well <laughs> on the calm side. But, but, but were they, any of them, either individually or collectively, um, at risk of, for example, not being employed if, if they, on the, on the occasions when they took up these causes? There are a couple of uh, mentions in, in memoirs. Uh, Lena Ashwell mentions that uh, Herbert Tree threw a suffrage book she had in her hand, sorry, across the room. And uh, Kitty Marion, who's uh, quite famously one of the music hall actresses who was a member of the Actresses Franchise League, um, she went to see an agent who said, if you take those colours off, I'll employ you. Mm. And she said, well, you should employ me before I put them on because they're not coming off now. Um, <laughs> so there, there were some people, and interestingly, there were people like um, uh, the Vambras. So, uh, so for example, Dion Boussico was an anti, but his sister Nina was pro and his wife was pro. It must have been an intriguing mix. <laughs> um, even more, she tells a, a lovely story um, about, I'm just going to just check on here so I quote her. She was wonderful, even more. Um, she said that she went round one evening uh, to collect signatures from actor managers from the conciliation, for the conciliation bill. And she went round in a taxi one evening from 7.30 to 11.30, from theatre to theatre, with a petition, getting signatures. And she said, to the credit of our well-known actors and actor managers, be it said, there were very few refusals. Um, an extraordinary gesture, actually, her in a taxi going around from stage door to stage door to stage door, getting the signatures of the voters, because they, the government weren't listening to the women, they were listening to the voters. Um, so, yeah, there were, there were antis, and some of them, I think, risked, risked um, employment, definitely. Uh, also, the issue with militancy, too. They couldn't just disappear off and be in prison, for example. Um, but there were some really strong uh, people in positions of power on their side, both women and men, for example, Johnston Forbes Robertson, uh, the husband of Gertrude Elliott, who was the president of the League, he was a speaker for the Men's Political Union. He was a passionate suffragist. Sybil Thorndike's husband was a passionate suffragist. They had a lot of powerful people on their side and a lot of powerful women on their side. So I think it would have been risky, but I think if they were putting their lot in with the suffragists, there were a lot of good people there. Mm. Maggie, uh, the, the, there were obviously some names that we recognise in, in amongst the lists that we've just heard. Who, who were the key people uh, amongst the actresses who were involved? I think the names that have been mentioned were the, were the kind of key, the Vambra sisters, Lamore May Whitty. Um, one thing I wanted to add to that was that if we look at these actresses today, what in fact they were was activists. Um, 
that, that this was the first time that actresses had kind of created a collectivist strategy around a particular political issue. And that the industry at the time, this is pre-subsidy, we still have censorship, it's a commercial theatre system with some amateur and some sort of more experimental subscription theatre. Um, but there was, there was a very fine line between being employable and being in the news for, for working in a, in a kind of um, an activist uh, situation. I think Claire Balding was recently on the television. She, she kept saying to the women, but were they terrorists? Were they ter no, they weren't terrorists, but they were activists. Um, so Lena Ashwell is, is a big figure at the time. Uh, who had been a very, very successful actress and set up her own theatre. She was running the Kingsway for a short period. I mean, she was quite a kind of big name. Mm. Remember that lots of the actresses uh, then became playwrights, and this is certainly the case with, that, with playwrights in the 20s and 30s. Many of them began their careers as actresses. Um, so I think those probably are the main names, aren't they? Mae Whitty, Adeline Bourne. Adeline Bourne, uh, Gertrude Elliott, um, Elizabeth Robbins, Cicely Hamilton, of course. Um, yeah, and Eva and Decima Moore, who were there right until the, the end of the league. And very, very big, successful public figures. Dame Madge Kendall was actually the first president. When they started the meeting, Madge Kendall was their first president. The thing that most people tend to know or think about when they think about the women's suffrage movement is the people who really put themselves on the line and went to prison and endured forced feeding and all of the stuff that uh, we um, know and don't really like to think about. But did... It sounds to me as though the people working in the theatre were actually not quite at that most militant and exposed end, but, but, what, but were there any who did wind up in prison? Kitty Marion was in prison a lot. I think she was force-fed 232 times. She was in prison all over the country. Um, there were window-smashing raids where um, quite a lot of the more sort of suffragist um, members were arrested, and there were some sort of dodgy arrests. Um, one of the AFL was arrested on the steps of the Lyceum Theatre because the police said she was selling literature, and they went to court, and she defended herself, and they couldn't prove anything. But they were kind of always treading a, a line. Um, no, there were some who went to prison. And the, but also, what's interesting is, um, could they afford to go to prison in terms of their freelance status as actresses? And also, um, I was talking to a, a member of a family who's, who remembered that her... A relative had said that she couldn't afford to go to prison because she couldn't afford to have her teeth broken. In the forcible feeding, there was uh, these gags were being used. And actually, when I read the Royal Theatrical Fund records from that period, because of course it's before the NHS and everything, a lot of the actors are writing in for money for dentistry, particularly. If you're disappearing off, you know, for three months in prison, you might have your teeth broken. You're going to have all sorts of problems with your throat and your digestion. You're not then going to be able to hop out of prison and jump on a stage again. What they're really doing is that they're, what they're, their militancy is actually is being open on stage and saying, I believe in this and this is what I'm going to do to show my, my belief in it. Yeah. Well, the next extract that we're going to hear it deals uh, with, with the question of money. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, of course, part of the issue around women's suffrage is, is to do with who holds economic power. But it is also interesting that actresses were amongst, I suppose, a relatively small group of women at that point who were economically independent or, or could be, probably, <laughs> probably to a limited extent, as is indeed still true now. But um, so lead us into the next extract on the issue. Okay, this next extract is from a play by Gertrude Jennings called A Woman's Influence. And it was first performed at the WSPU, the Suffragettes Women's Exhibition, 
at the Prince's Skating Rink in Knightsbridge in 1909. Gertrude Jennings is another playwright who uh, continued writing between 1911 and 1955. She had 45 plays in the West End, with 45 published by Samuel French. So, A Woman's Influence approaches the topic of female sweated labour directly and emotively, contrasting one female character, Mrs Perry, who is dislikable, hypocritical and manipulative, as she uses what she considers to be her only advantage, her womanliness, to try to influence men, with the pragmatic, feminist and morally upright Mrs Lawrence. Um, the WSPU's newspaper, Votes for Women, described Mrs Lawrence as the very embodiment of the new spirit which is pervading the women of the younger generation, not anti-man, not bigoted, but deep-sighted and wise, who know just what a woman's influence really means and just what the vote would do. So at the beginning of the play, the audience learns that Margaret, Mrs Lawrence, has been trying to interest the local MP, Mr Reed, in the poor conditions and the low pay of the female factory workers where she lives. Uh, her husband, Herbert, is superficially uh, supportive of her campaign, but refuses to speak to Mr Reed on her behalf. Mrs Perry, who doesn't really care about the women workers at all, bets Margaret and her friend that she can get Herbert to get Mr Reed to ask a question in the House of Commons, um, having said that her way of asking is worth a thousand votes. <laughs> What's up, I joke? Anything wrong? Is it you, Mrs. Perry? Yes. Oh, I say, no, don't do that. Um, oh, what, what's happened? I'll, I'll, I'll call Margaret. No, no, dear, Mr. Lawrence, no, please don't. Uh, well, then, um, Miss Dickett, she's only just gone. A woman knows what to say. No, no, please. Well, I'll, um, I'll get out of the way. Get out. instinct of a woman 
woman discovers the strong hand of a man can put right. Dear Mr. Lawrence, won't you help me? In what way, Mr. Perry? What can I do? What, what can I do, you know? Won't you go to Mr. Reed and ask him to do something about this awful business? He would listen to you and he wouldn't pay any attention to poor me. Well, I'm quite sure that if you went to see him, Mrs. Perry, he would do anything he could for you. Ah, no. I have heard that he is a most unsympathetic man, that he cares very little about other people's troubles, so different from you. <laughs> Dear, come, Mr. Lawrence. Oh. oh. Um. Well, I'm afraid I, I can't do very much, but what I can is at your service. Oh, very good of you. Oh, how absurd it is to talk about boats for women when men are so gentle, so... Unselfish. <laughs> well, now, what do you think can be done, Mrs. Perry? Eh? Uh, I'm so ignorant. I, I, I hardly like to say, but I think perhaps Mr. Reed ought to ask a question in the house about the underpayment of women workers. Why shouldn't he mention this factory as a case in point? Oh, well, he couldn't do that, I'm afraid, but I dare say he could quote some statistics. Uh, I'm no businessman, and I, I mean, these things, are, these things are hard to explain to a lady, but if, <laughs> if you start monkeying with wages, shares go down, and then there's a row with the shareholders, see, and no end of a fuss begins. Oh, but, but surely shareholders oughtn't to mind if their share do go down a little bit if it's to help the poor woman. No, they oughtn't, of course, but they're not all like you, Mr. Perry. Not all like you, that's the trouble, you see. Now, you wouldn't care a bit, I'll swear, if your shares were, weren't to pay 7% uh, a year or two, but well, if the workers benefited. Oh, no. No, not at all, but of course, my shares shouldn't go down, couldn't go down. They're in consoles or something, aren't they? Oh, bless my soul. No, you wouldn't get 7% in consoles. No, 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 Mrs. Perry. I promised your husband I'd look after your money for you, and I kept my word. It's invested in Hill Rise Securities. What? <laughs> yes, why, the factories are in Margaret's district. A jolly investment, I'll tell you. Not likely to go down, either, unless anything happens to upset it. Uh, anything happens to upset it? <laughs> but what's the matter? Uh, it's nothing. Really nothing. Oh, well, that's all right. Now, um, uh, what shall I say to Reed? I'll see him tomorrow, if you like. Uh, he thinks a lot of what I say, nice fellow Reed, and he'll get the whole thing going in less than no time. Oh, will he? Rather, leave it all to me. Go like a flash. Uh, Mr. Lawrence, I thought of a little plan. Oh, uh, what might that be? I think perhaps I'd better wait till I've worked it all out. Then I'll tell you, and it shall be our little secret. And you'll help me with it, won't you? Rather. <laughs> you, well, you know I will. Anything I can do, trust me. Oh, thank you. I will let you know as soon as I have got it all fixed up. But meanwhile, dear Mr. Lawrence, I want you to keep absolute silence over this matter. Not to see Mr. Reed or upset yourself over the question in any way. I can't explain why. But if you do, it will absolutely ruin my little scheme. Will you promise? Certainly. Oh, what am I to do about Margaret? Margaret? Yes, she's always wanted me to go into it with her. Well, tell her that you've come just now. I need you. 
She talks about it uh, such a lot about it, she never lets me get a word in. Well, but uh, I'm sure you can be firm when really necessary. Yes. <laughs> I can tell that you are full of hidden strength. Oh, well, uh, as to that, I'm master here, of course. <laughs> of course. So you'll tell dear Margaret you can do nothing. Very well. And you'll keep my little secret. I swear it. <clears throat> oh, dearest Margaret. <laughs> as you so gave the poor creature her teeth, what a ministering angel you are. Well, I really must dash myself, tidy myself up before tea. I shan't be a moment. I know what you think, Margaret. <laughs> what do I think? Uh, you um, think I was uh, flirting with Mrs. Perry. Well, why shouldn't you? What? My dear old boy, do you think I don't know Aileen by now? Why she behaves like that with every man she meets? Besides, do you suppose I don't know you? Well, how do you mean? Only that I've absolute confidence in you. You're not angry, then? Not the least little bit in the world. Oh, by Jove, Margaret. You're the nicest, dearest, most oh, yes, sensible... Oh, yes, 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 I know. <laughs> the only thing I don't understand is why Aileen was making such a mystery of it all. Of all what? Why that she was asking you to help us. You know that, then? Well, of course. Why not? Well, uh, she's got her own idea about it, you see, Margaret. And you've promised not to do anything for Hill Rise yet a while. Yet? What factory did you say, Margaret? The Hill Rise, of course. That's the worst by far, didn't you know? No. Oh, Herbert, dear, I've told you over and over again. Oh, yes, I know, but I wasn't paying much attention. <laughs> you know how it is. Well, men have so much to think about, they can't always be listening. <laughs> tell me that, I, I begin to realise that's why she changed all of a sudden and didn't want me to go to Reed. I see. She changed and didn't want you to go to Reed? No, because, don't you see, all her money's in Hill Rise and she only just found it out. Oh, I see. So you'd promised to go to Reed before that? Well, <coughs> uh, well you, you know what it is, old girl. When, when I saw her crying. Crying? <laughs> yes, for the, for the poor women. It was awfully sweet. Oh, Herbert! This is what you mean by a woman's influence. This is how we're to wield our power, to arm fighters in our great cause, to carry out our mighty enterprise. Any little flirt or idle, heartless woman is to bend a man's will to do her bidding at that moment. What can be done with such weapons? Well, what do you mean, Margaret? I mean that Mrs. Perry was weeding wheedling you into doing this for a joke, a bet. A bet? Yes, a bet with Miss Thicket. Then, of course, when she found out it would damage her own interests, she drew back and made you promise not to do anything. By Jove! What makes you think so? I don't... <laughs> I know. Upon my word, it's too bad, and I shall tell her so. She'd only laugh. Laugh, indeed. It simply horrifies me. I don't think it's at all amusing. No, Herbert, it isn't really amusing. If one thinks of all the sin and misery that lie beneath it all, the helplessness of woman using her one weapon, sometimes beautifully, sometimes merely frivolously like today, sometimes with degradation, but always, always the same weapon. Oh, if you men would only give us another one, 
the use of our independence, so that we could realize that we are reasonable creatures, fit to be heard equally with men, not parasites. You love and respect me, I know. I want you to love and respect woman for my sake, to give her that place in social life, which is her right. She is worthy. She will be more worthy. Help her then, and someday you will be proud of what you have done. I wonder if you're right, Margaret. I, I begin to think there's something in what you say, <laughs> and that I ought to help you after all. Oh, my dear. But I don't want you to come just because I persuaded you, or to do anything against your better judgment. I want you to come because you see the cause is just. I do see it. Yes, Margaret, I will help you. I can in a hundred ways. And the work will be ever so much easier if we do it together. Oh, my dear. That's the key to the whole woman's movement. We can do so much more if we work together. Um, Janie has, has joined us. And uh, we want to talk a bit about the, the power and influence that actors, actresses, in this case, um, are able to exercise from the position of being visible and what was true then, maybe how it reflects on now. And I think you also want to talk a bit about theatrical charities and charities that... If you want to. Yes, why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah, what should we start with? Well, let's start. I, th I think it's very, um, it's very interesting thinking about the role of, of women 100 years ago and indeed much further back. That that there were very few ways in which they could be in public mm. and play out, and literally, in this case, play out, roles other than the roles that were assigned to them domestically. Mm. And it just struck me here that this is a play in which two women are operating in the domestic realm, but in very, very different ways. Mm. And so I just wondered about actors' ab yeah. ability to step into the public realm as a mm. virtue, as, as a... As a, a as a function of doing yeah. what they well, do. Well, this, this play is a very good example of, of the double-edged sword, if you like, being a woman, certainly being an actress who's asked to stand up for certain causes. Sometimes they come to you because they've seen you in something and they think you're lovely or you're pretty and you will be a good person, the face of that particular campaign. I think most of the time, certainly, yeah, all the actors and actresses I know are heart-driven so they get involved with charities and causes because they are pretty political people. Um, the nature of the job means you're always stepping into somebody else's shoes. So you become a sort of amateur psychologist and you start to understand the world in different angles from all the people you play and all the people you play with. And so that leads on to caring about all sorts of people. And that's where I guess you will possibly drive something that you believe in um, as an actor, using the forum of being an actor to help that thing go forward. Um, the disadvantage of being a passionate person and being an actress, particularly an actress, is that you can be labelled mad. And, of course, Vanessa Redgrave, who is one of the great actors of our time and 
who truly believes in all the causes she gets involved with, and I've been, you know, rallied with her a couple of times. Uh, she is so active and so helpful to so many different causes, but her image, if you like, with some people is of a slightly mad woman, um, which she truly isn't. Um, very intelligent, but that's that can be the disadvantage of being a, you know, an artist who likes to get involved in politics. I think Glenda Jackson probably um, got over that because she's Glenda Jackson. Uh, well, I'm just wondering whether there's something, actually, Maggie, you might like, like to pick this up, about um, women in education as well. I mean, what you're describing is a, is a, a view of actresses and, by extension, of women, which is that they are emotional, i.e. not rational and that somehow um, they are likely to be, therefore, not capable of putting an argument together and following it through in an intellectually coherent way. That must have had something to do with the fact that actually women were largely kept out of formal education until uh, the late part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, and that, that was beginning to change, presumably. I think this period, as well, is, is a time when a lot of these things are changing. You get the beginning of the, the Labour Party, the beginning of unionisation. Um, you know, women could go to university, but they couldn't actually get their degree, which yeah. sort of makes things a bit pointless, really. <laughs> you know, you couldn't actually take the exams. I think that, that uh, actresses have very, very often worked in charitable um, contexts, and one of the things I wondered was that, you know, for, for women performing in this particular period, the line between employment and having enough to live on and non-employment and not having anything to live on was quite fine. And I think they saw poverty um, and were around poverty as well as being around kind of great wealth. Mm. And that may as well, that may also have fed their kind of desire to work for charitable organisations. But also these actresses thought that theatre could change the way people thought. They really, really believed that. I'm sure there are still many, many who do. But that what you were saying earlier about playing out, um, you know, these stories being played out on stage, it's in the public realm. Um, and it is a kind of an acting out of something. People were terrified of women getting the vote. They thought that women would all vote in mass and that we'd have what they called a petticoat government. I quite like the sound of that. But, um, and, and so there was a huge cultural anxiety about women actually having any sort of power in the public realm. And the theatre was a funny kind of liminal space in which that could be played out as well and be very useful, I think, and they saw that. And I think it still is. I think it still is. It does still have that, but the theatre still has that capacity to engage people with political messages in a way that very few other public... Uh, spaces can. Yes, it's such a relief, isn't it, to go and see a play that discusses very articulately yeah. uh, the politics of the time or a situation that might come up. I did a play at the Royal Court recently, NSFW, that was, was just such a clear discussion about women, in fact, and about how women themselves can undermine mm -hmm. other women. And, and in that scene, there, there's a really good, uh, another really good example of that. Well, we, we probably ought to move on to the, to the next extract, but I think that's an interesting observation, which we might, if we have a moment, pick up, which is the extent to which the women's suffrage movement and, indeed, the advancement of women in uh, other times was often significantly undermined by women. And um, 
uh, these plays, uh, that, this is one little example of exactly that at work, isn't it? Naomi, take us on to the next one. Okay, this is an extract um, from a play called Pot and Kettle. And uh, you find a lot of the plays really bring to the fore, as Maggie said, the anti-suffrage arguments. There was a very strong anti-suffrage movement. Um, so this play uh, begins in the suburban sitting room of Mr. and Mrs. Brewster, um, where they're waiting for their daughter, Marjorie, to return home after an evening out at an anti-suffrage meeting. Um, Marjorie's young man, Ernest, is there, but he soon gets fed up waiting for her and heads off to see a friend. Um, Marjorie's cousin, Nell, a suffragette, is also there and is looking forward to hearing about the anti-suffragist meeting. Mr. and Mrs. Brewster are not in favour of votes for women and are hoping that Marjorie will meet some very nice people at the anti-meeting. Um, the extract we're going to have uh, happens when Marjorie eventually arrives home. Um, intriguingly, a note in the original programme says, the idea of this play was suggested to the authors by an incident which occurred at a meeting by the Anti-Suffrage League at the Queen's Hall in March 1909. And uh, how did it all go off? Yes, how did it all go off? Cheers for the wife, cheers for the mother, cheers for the happy, happy home. Gentlemen in white waistcoats assuring you how they've reverenced their mothers in spite of the fact that they consider them far too idiotic to vote. The county is in danger. Chivalry, men are men, and women are women, and all the rest of it. Eh? Don't. Perhaps, Nell, you'll have the courtesy to remember that your jeers are out of place in an old-fashioned household where we are not in sympathy with your peculiar ideas on these subjects. I hope. Did you carry your resolution? I... No, no. You don't know? No. Well, that's to say I can't be sure. There was such a disturbance at the end I couldn't make out. Good Lord! When I think of a treat I've missed, I couldn't kick myself when I think of it. I'd have given my best hat to be there and a pair of boots thrown in. Oh, really? No, you understand There was good old opposition then. There were some suffragettes. Lots the beasts. <laughs> Steady on. Steady on. I shall have to take a leaf out of Uncle Frederick's book and remind you that I'm not in sympathy with your peculiar ideas on these subjects. They are beasts. Well, never mind. There's no need to worry about it if we are. Never mind the suffragettes, darling. We don't want to hear about them. Tell us about dear Lady Shipley. What did she say? Something about women's true sphere of I did not ask you, Nell. You were not there. You can, cannot possibly know. It's a safe enough guess, though. They all say it. Tell me, darling, what did she say? I don't know. Can't remember. Now, Lady Shipmake is evidently an interesting and impressive speaker. I must <laughs> ask you, Nell. I don't know. Just, just do away. What's the matter? What's the matter? She's excited over time. No, I'm not. It's not that. Oh. Oh. <laughs> what is it, darling? Tell me. Something awful. <laughs> Marjorie, tell me. Oh, I can't tell you. I can't. I don't know how I shall ever tell you. Marjorie, you, you frighten me. Hey, fuck off, old girl. Have a glass of water. Oh, I wish I was dead. I wish I was dead and buried and cremated. Tell yourself together, Marjorie. <laughs> Is it anything about Ernest? Not yet. <laughs> and it will be. 
they said. But who did you assault? Who did you batter? <laughs> Suffragette! Oh, oh, Marjorie, Marjorie, oh, my poor dear child, what, what have they been doing to you? Now calm yourself, Marjorie, and stop crying and wipe your eyes. For heaven's sake, be calm. This must be explained. We must get to the bottom of it. I am to understand, you tell me, that you, my daughter, are to be charged in a common police court with assaulting and battering one of those unsexed monsters known as suffragettes. Yes. But it's a lie. It's an infamous lie. It isn't. Marjorie. It isn't. You tell me that. Now, child, you think about what you're saying. Think what these words mean. No, you're out of your senses. Grief has distracted no. you. Oh, Father! Father! I can't think how I came to do it, but I did. You did? Marjorie! No, you're saying I didn't. Lots of people saw me. The policeman at the door, he saw me. And dozens of suffragettes. And they're all coming as witnesses to the court. Oh. Maria, it will be in the mail. <laughs> to the meeting. And then there was the most awful row. All the suffragettes, there were 
hundreds of them, got up and stood on their seats and shouted. They said they all wanted to ask questions, but nobody would let them, so they went on shouting. And she, the one next to me, who was about the worst of all, she had this flag hidden under her coat with votes for women on it. And she took it and waved it. And she kept calling out, Madam Chairman, I want to put a question to Lady Shipley. And at last I got so excited with all the noise and the organist beginning God Save the King to stop the questions, that I told her to sit down. She didn't take any notice and went on waving a flag and making more noise. Then I got more excited still. And I don't know exactly what made me do it, but I knocked her hat over her eyes and thumped her twice. You did? Oh, Archer, I told you lots of people saw me do it. It wasn't any good pretending. The policeman at the door saw me, and she called him. The policeman? Yes, and... Go on, go on to the bitter end. She was going to charge me with assaulting her, that I belonged to the militant section of the anti-suffragettes and she didn't approve of their tactics, and that she'd take us down a peg to have a case brought into the court and, oh, it was dreadful, and to give my name and address, and I've got to appear. Don't ask me anymore, don't, it was so awful. Oh, what have we done that this blow should fall upon us? Shia! Look here, Marjorie, do you know her name? Who was she? Well, that's the worst of it. Why? What do you mean? She's... She's a very important person. <laughs> very. Who? Her name is Lady... Uh, Lady Susan Pengarvel. <laughs> Lady... Lady Susie. Lady Susan Pengarvel, did you say? Youngest daughter of the late Marquis of Penzance, sister of the present peer. Yes. And you hit her? <laughs> Lady of title? Why not? <laughs> a Marquis's daughter, and you called her a rude and vulgar person of Marjorie. Who was I to tell? So what happened in the end? Well, what happens after that <laughs> is luckily Nell reveals that she's a friend of Lady Susan Pangorvans and they'd previously been arrested together in the House of Commons. Um, she phones her and manages to get her to drop the charges. Um, and Nell also secures a lunch invitation for Marjorie with Lady Susie the next day. Um, Mr and Mrs Brewster are mightily relieved and also impressed that Marjorie will be lunching with a lady of title, <laughs> even though she's a suffragette. <laughs> Well, I'm just thinking on about that, but no. Um, so that, that's, a, that's really wonderfully funny and nuanced bit of, of uh, comic writing, isn't it? Splendid. Um, so here we are in, in 2013, and um, we're all busy celebrating what happened 100 years ago. How much progress have we made? No, clearly we have made a lot of progress against the issues that were current in, in 1913. Uh, uh, and, and the few years either side when these plays were being written. But what is the legacy of the Actresses Franchise League as far as current politics are concerned? I think it's interesting, isn't it, that we all have a, a recognition of those kind of situations, don't we? And that, the, that um, often when people write about women playwrights, um, I've spent 20 years researching women playwrights, they say, oh, well, you know, they were very interesting plays, but they weren't very good or... 
Um, you know, they were very popular, but they're not sort of, you know, they're not works of great literature. And there's one actress who shall remain nameless who put together an anthology in the 80s where she said, you know, I'd look a long time and never find a masterpiece. And I think those kinds of questions are sort of not relevant. These are historically very important plays that have not been hugely written about. There's, there's a new generation of people writing about them now, of, of whom Naomi is one. But also, they are an, a, a kind of they, they represent a link in a chain of playwriting um, where uh, women found success actually in the commercial sector, ironically. Um, and many of the women, as we, we were saying about uh, the woman who wrote A Woman's Influence, the earlier piece, they carried on writing after the First World War. Um, Gertrude Jennings had her first big West End hit in the 30s. But she made a very good living from amateur rights to plays. There, people were very interested in doing theatre at this point. There were a lot more plays being put on than there are now, for example. So I think they have that kind of historical significance as plays. Um, but also, you can see many of them are great, and they work. Um, you know, these were good writers. These were people who understood how theatre worked. And the other thing I would just say, which I think was a very deliberate strategy was that many of the women that wrote for the AFL were also playwrights, and those who came before and came after them often wrote more parts for women in their plays and wrote all women plays um, that, you know, had a kind of healthy-ish place in the West End in terms of probably more plays by women put on then than now, which is quite shocking, actually, but yeah. it's true. I, 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 do, I do think that is interesting, that there was, there was that... that um, quantum of work that women were writing and performing in them, which probably was a, a greater percentage of what was available then than would be the case even now, and certainly than was a generation ago. Naomi, before we have the last extract, and um, anything you want to add to what Maggie's just said? Well, I just wanted to talk a little bit about what happened after 1914, because often we know these plays before the First War, and we sort of followed the suffrage campaign up until the First War. Um, actually, in, in December 1913, um, the Actors Franchise League were part of putting together a Women's Theatre Week at the Coronet. There were three plays on, um, and they wanted uh, all female uh, sort of backstage in front of house. They wanted women set designers, women directors, women producers. Um, they had plays by men, and they wanted men as actors, but they wanted it to be a women's theatre. And they were hoping, it went very well, and they were hoping to roll that out, um, to have it every year, and also to have it in New York. And the First World War kind of stopped that. Um, however, the Actresses Franchise League didn't stop when the First World War happened. Um, uh, the AFL began to organise themselves for the war effort. So um, Decimer and Eva Moore and Lena Ashwell uh, formed the Women's Emergency Corps and used the Little Theatre, um, which they'd, which is just outside their offices actually, as a base. And an offshoot from that was the Three Arts Employment Fund, which employed unemployed theatricals for war work, which was run by Naomi Jacob. Um, and they administered the ERA, uh, the theatrical paper, the ERA War Distress Fund. They started the British Women's Hospital, the Women's Volunteer Reserve. They restored the original Star and Garter Home for Disabled Servicemen. Uh, Cicely Hamilton, who wrote quite a lot of what you've heard this afternoon, helped to found the Scottish Women's Hospitals in France. Lena Ashwell took responsibility for organising troops entertainments in the UK as the Women's Theatre Camps entertainments in France and Belgium. And they were writing patriotic plays as well. Evelyn Glover was writing patriotic mm -hmm. plays. Um, Adeline Bourne founded the Women's Adjustment Board after the Second World War to help women get back to work. Um, and they, they had their last at home was the 50th year of the Actors Franchise League in 1958 at the Guards Club. Um, and the last mi minute books that I've seen are from 1940 and 1942. So 32 years after they'd started, 
So many of the founding members that were still alive were as dedicated as they ever had been to campaigning for women's causes. So they were still using their support, still using what they could do, less so of the plays, but more of the fundraising and more of using their celebrity to raise money for, for women's causes. They, they, they kept going, really, until they were... Until they died, um, and we don't we don't really explore that part of it. So, yes, that's what I wanted to say. They were brilliant, and they kept being brilliant um, even after this. It's a real shame that the, all this combination of work and resources and people was beginning to come to something with the Women's Theatre Week, and that was beginning really to to work out into a more uh, stable, more organised, more sustainable, potentially here and and in the states way of of women being involved in theatre. And then it all kind of got derailed by the, by the first war. Wonderful. Well, um, yeah. <laughs> so we're going to have one more reading, one more um, rather wonderful piece, which uh, Janie's going to do for us. But um, Naomi, introduce it. Okay, so the last reading is um, from a speech by an American actress and playwright called Elizabeth Robbins. Um, who came uh, to the UK in 1889. Um, she produced Hedda Gabler in London and was the first woman to play Hedda in London and on Broadway. Um, and her play Votes for Women in 1907 was produced at the court, um, which had a very famous second act, which was a kind of recreation of a suffragette rally in um, Trafalgar Square. Um, she was a member of the WSPU, and she was also the first president of the Women Writers Suffrage League, which was the kind of sister League of the Actresses Franchise League, which also started in 1908. Um, so she was a prominent member of the, the uh, WSPU, but she didn't really get involved in militant causes. Um, she was a fantastic speaker and writer. And I just, we've heard a lot from the plays, but I really wanted you to hear some of her words. So this is from a speech um, she made in 1908 at Newcastle Town Hall. growing number of people have begun to see clearly that there never was before in all the course of history such a chance for the wisdom of our half of the world to manifest itself as is given to women today. Join in this movement. Give it your special gift, whatever that gift may be. Give it your time and influence. Everybody has some. Give it pounds, or give it pennies, or give it defense. Do your share with the sure knowledge that you are not only doing, but receiving good. The situation is enormously interesting. Before the coming of these wonderful days, women had to do their work. Even the most gifted and the bravest women had to work not only heavily handicapped, but without any hope of making the battle a whit easier for others. A woman might, if she had great abilities and great luck, she might make an individual success. But she did so with the disheartening knowledge that her most shining achievement left the great mass of women, and therefore of men, left the world little better off. In spite of all her individual striving, in spite of all her individual success, what she achieved did not really count in the long run. By so much as she distinguished herself, she was thought of as an exception, a sport, as the men of science say. 
but the women who are working for high ends today may work gladly and with uplifted hearts. For they find themselves, especially, I say this to the younger women, you find yourselves in the field at a great moment in the world's history. Your good fortune is to be offered a glorious piece of work at a time when what you do is going to count. <coughs> whether you have read history or whether you have read only the newspapers, you must have come to see that the times are ripe for a new and a nobler standard of the value of woman's work. I do not really need to say that this applies as much to the woman whose chief work is minding her home and bringing up her children, bringing them up as to believe in the equal dignity of the sexes. It applies to her just as much as it applies to those who are employed in more public services. A very moving thought is this one of the high significance of women's actions and women's words in these months that lie before us. Stop a moment to realize the situation. Women who have so long been called weak and helpless, who have so often been weak and helpless, they need be that no longer unless they are so downtrodden and so spiritless that they prefer being weak and helpless to being strong and being of value. Until the suffrage movement made such a statement possible and true, never before could anyone with a sense of responsibility stand up and say to an audience of all sorts and conditions, there isn't a woman here who may not have her share in the honor of counting for something in the politics of her country. Well, I'm afraid we have to stop. And uh, so I just want to thank everybody, Sam and Jamie, Maggie and Naomi for and the ones who've gone uh, for giving us a really really interesting afternoon and thank you to all of you for being here it's been great thank you very much <laughs>